Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited. We've got a broadcaster, we've got a musician, we've got a public speaker who help people understand the voice they have to publicly speak their mind and give awesome speeches. Her name is Gweno Davids and she's from Wales. And hello and welcome to the show, Gweno. How are you doing today? Thank you very much, Aaron, and I'm very excited to be here. And as I've only got 7% of my ability to engage with the audience because you can't see me and see how wonderful I am in person, I'm trying to sound as excited as possible. (laughs) Did I manage it? (laughs) (laughs) Where did you discover that enthusiasm? Oh, it's bottled within me. I don't know. I just get turbocharged by life, actually. We are only here once and we need to make the best of it, whatever our circumstances, whatever life checks at us. And you're a great one to know that because you're a very positive person and I love talking to you on any opportunity, Aaron. Oh, oh, fab. Um, When did you discover your voice in broadcasting? Well, I've always discovered a voice. Uh, I started singing when I was about three or four. My mum used to put me into competitions and I always performed throughout my childhood in chapels and in something we have in Estevod in Wales, which is a cultural festival. And that's why so many of us are very good performers. But I actually started broadcasting when I was 21 and I'd gone to college and that's another story. Uh, I was going to be a physical education teacher, but that all went wrong. I had a condition called chondromalacia patella and had to change direction. So I was dreadfully unhappy. After college, I wasn't able to be a physical education teacher. So I went to Belgium to be an au pair. The job was actually promoted or advertised on Welsh medium radio, which was called Radio Cymru. 
And at the time, I was waiting to go to Canada to become a governess out there. And my mother didn't want me to go to Canada because this was in the sort of late 70s. So it was a very different proposition going over there now. So she said, look, there's a job in Belgium. Why don't you apply? And I didn't know anything at all about Brussels, apart from the fact that uh, they probably had loads of Brussels sprouts there. And that's about it. Uh, so I applied and I got the job and it was for a Welsh medium au pair for a family living there. I applied for the job, got the job, and when I was over there, Radio Cymru got in touch with me and said, would you uh, talk about your experience landing this job and what are your hopes and what are your ambitions, etc., etc., etc. So I did. And then because I'd done drama as my um, main course after physical education, I was very interested in performing. I was very interested in broadcasting and the media. And so I said to them, well, how about I send you sort of uh, articles and items about what's happening in Belgium, what's happening in Europe? And they said, yeah, that's a great idea. So that's where it all started back in 1979 when I went out to Belgium and I started sending sending the BBC Radio Cymru lots of items and uh, so I was their spokesperson. I was their woman in Brussels and I did lots of radio from that point onward. And also because I'd been linked in uh, Belgium, uh, HTV got in touch with me and they came over and I ended up somehow or another uh, uh, interpreting for the Belgian Prime Minister, believe it or not. I don't know how I did that, but I learned to speak Flemish when I was out there. And I also ended up with my performing. I was on a television programme with Kim Wilde uh, performing a song. She was singing The Kids in America and I was singing a very uh, interesting version of Downtown. And it was very big in large supermarkets like B&Q and Tesco. So that's where it all started. And so that's a long, long time ago. Uh, so since that time, I've realised that broadcasters are intrinsically quite lazy and don't have a huge amount of time. So if you send them an article, send them an item with beginning, middle, end, and it sounds interesting, they will take it up because they just haven't got time to look at ideas. So, you know, it basically, if you want to get into broadcasting, you've really got to push. You've got to kiss the frogs. You've got to get out there and you've got to just approach people and be blasé and have a lot of chutzpah, as they call it in Yiddish. It's something uh, mouth-worthy about it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I was blessed with a huge amount of chutzpah when I was brought up in West Wales. Um, and I suppose my communication skills started because we were brought up in the middle of nowhere and a lot of fiery people in one household. So I often used to go out and sit on the milk stand and wait for people to pass. And anybody who used to pass, I just grab them and have a conversation with them. So I could talk with anybody and I love to talk. I love to talk with loads of people and find out about their lives because it's so, so important. And we we're only here for one journey so we might as well learn as much as we we can i'm a big big fan of lifelong learning and i try and learn something new every single day and communication is so key to everything we do in life as someone growing up as a kid you probably grab someone and communication probably that was where your draw came for broadcasting i'd say Quite possibly, but I was always a little bit of a show off, you know, and I love the applause and I love making people laugh and I love singing. So, you know, the, the performer is really rock solid in, in me. And because of the Estevod in ways, you do have all these opportunities to perform. And also in chapel, every single Sunday, we have to do our, our verse. I was uh, quite lazy as a kid, so I usually turn up and say the same one, which was, do, carry a do, do was a lot of love. Or the one I did say was, I did learn this one off Pat. Which means, 
and he came into the boat and he crossed and he came to his own city. So that was about the sum of it. But I was also very, very interested in discussing ideas. I've always been very political and I'm often used as a political pundit on lots of uh, different shows because I'm not scared of talking about my opinion. I became political at a very young age and I'm concerned really that youngsters nowadays don't see how it relates to their own lives. In our school in Fishguard, we had elections. For example, today we would have had an election in our school. And I stood applied Cymru candidate, the Welsh Nationalist Party, at the age of 14. So I used to campaign then and I used to go out on the megaphone for applied Cymru in various areas, which were totally impossible to win. So I suppose the, the opportunities of public speaking were always there. And I love to voice my opinion on any subject. It's interesting how when you're fearless, you understand and grapple with the gift and the performance that you have inside you in some way that seems to be innate in some way. Yes, I suppose it must be innate because my mother is quite shy. My father was someone who would talk to anybody, but he was quite shy in, in large circles. My mother was a singer, a very, very good singer, and she still is a very good singer, although she's now quite, quite aged. So music was all around us and uh, they both sang. We were all encouraged to be musical and of course, so performance was part of that. And broadcasting is just that, it's presenting a front, you know, to people. And I think it's really important to be as authentic as you possibly can because people see through you. And especially, you know, as I was saying right at the beginning, this medium depends on your voice. So in all round communication, um, by now it is, it's a well-known fact that 55% of your communication is non-verbal. So you have a non-verbal language people tune into. You also have 38%, which is tonality. And then there's the actual words that you use, which is 7%. So I lied at the beginning. It's not just 7% of what I'm uh, saying is important. It's the other 38%, which following my math, and like 45%, 43%, whatever. So 43% of your communication skills, if you're talking on radio or on a podcast, you are not able to show physically all of those things that you want to communicate with people. So it's a very different sort of strategy that you have to use. So it's very important that you're aware of that. But going back to your original point, yes, I just think um, that I was somebody who loved to communicate. I love making people laugh. I love having an audience, any opportunity. And it's just amazing, really, that I've been able to make a career out of it. You know, it's now coming on to 42 years or whatever. And I still love it. I never get tired of it. And I just find it a really exciting medium. You know, I've been blessed, really, to have had a, a really nice career of performing in television, radio, films, cabaret theatre, theatre and education, all of those experiences have enabled me to have a very rich and fulfilling life on my performing and creative side. However, I've always had another career, which is the one of my living, because unfortunately, all the creativity is not always well paid. You know, you hear about some people who actually earn a fortune, but the vast majority of people who are in the creative industry scrape a living. We're mostly freelance, and I have to say that the COVID crisis has not been very kind to it. So because of that, because you're self-employed, because you have to find your own work, you become very adaptable and you become very creative at creating opportunities for yourself. So if somebody is wanting to go into broadcasting or podcasting or whatever capacity where you will be using your voice, the advice I would give them is don't expect to make a, a living out of it immediately. Always have a plan B because it's really crucial. Was that a big lesson that you had to learn throughout your career? 
to bounce back. I've been knocked down more times than the... Do you remember those things that you used to call weebles, I think? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. I've had to become so resilient. I've been refused. I've been rejected. I've been knocked down and had my self-confidence kicked into the dust. I have always had to get back up. And that's the only thing that you can do. For example, it took me 20 years to get my book about female stand-up comics published. My book is called Stand Up and Socket to Them Sister. And it's because of my passion about women in comedy. I don't know how many times I was rejected by publishers, by agents, by care going on. I had another idea that was a trip around Europe following in the tracks of my grandfather who did a motorbike trip around Europe uh, and uh, published a book which was called Cruijord Cavanda, it means uh, traveling the continent. And that took me 10 years to get commissioned and we had a series of four programs. It's taken me from the age of 21 to the age of 63 to get a performance in the West End. I've written a one-woman show about the French singer who is my role model. It's called Passionate Papiaf, and I took it to a club in the West End, Occidilly Circus called Brasserie Zedel, and that took me an awful long time to get commission. What else took me a long time? Well, um, I've overcome three car accidents, but as a result of that, well, survived, I suppose is the word, I've survived three car accidents, all caused by other people. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it has left me with a serious chronic pain condition that I have to live with on a daily basis. I mean, I woke up this morning feeling wretched and in a great deal of pain. However, I did manage to get a Welsh vest for the 400 metres after seven years. I never give up. And essentially, if you want something enough in your life, then make sure it's realistic. If it's not realistic, for example, if I said, oh, well, I'm going to go to the moon. Well, that's not realistic because first and foremost, I don't want to go there. We have enough issues on this world without thinking about going to another another globe. But the fact of the matter is it's not possible because I've never studied science. I am not particularly keen on rockets. So whatever your aim is in life, really, make sure that it's attainable and within your potential. But never, ever, ever give up. And I know that you're very similar in that nature. You never give up. So that's why I'm attracted to you. You're a like-minded soul and I admire your bravery and your persistence and your determination. You know, and I like those things in people because they're the values that I want to see reflected in my own life. And also, those are the sorts of people I want to work with. I want people who are brave, who are determined, but whatever's happened to them, they may not recognize those attributes or values. So I suppose my biggest tip for anyone in life is never give up, never ever give up. If you really want something hard enough, just keep on going. You know, try bit by bit, day by day, just do something that will project you towards your goal. You know, you're going to get setbacks, bounce back. Wow, it shows you the the fact of resilience, determination, all these ingredients that, you know, we look at athletes and performers, but we all have this. You know, to take 20 years in a book and to get a series, that must take, you know, hard work, dedication, but yet times of pain and mental, like, downfalls and all that kind of stuff, you know? Oh, yes, definitely. You know, but the thing was, I knew that it was something I wanted to share with the world because there was, you know, I, we have a duty, I think, to leave the world a better place than when we come here. We can be a materialistic. I'm not. We can gather all of these possessions. But, you know, research has shown that on people's deathbed, they never say, I wish I'd stayed in the office a bit longer. 
What is really important is human relationships. And I always try and make time for that. I try and make time for other people. I try and enable them come through their suffering because I've suffered enough and I don't want to think that someone else is struggling in the way that I often struggled. And I wasn't very good when I was younger at reaching out and saying, I need help because I just wasn't. But I'm a bit wiser now. And although it's been very difficult to say, I need help, I can do it now. And the other great tip I would say to people is get yourself a coach because we're often taught that coaches are people for people who fail, but no one ever got to the Olympic without a coach. We need someone to actually kick our ass, you know, and I've been kicking my own ass my entire life. And one of the relationships, well, in fact, the only relationship that we will have our entire life is with ourselves. So make sure you're your own best friend, you know, and treat your own best friend like you would treat your own best friend. So be kind to that person, you know, when that, that person yourself is struggling, be kind. Let her have some time off, you know, nice bath for yourself. I have to say that sometimes religion gets in the way with life. And although my life is guided by Christian principles, I'm not a very good Christian, to be honest. Uh, you know, I swear, I drink too much on occasions, I'm loud. You know, all of those things that we're not supposed to be. But I think the guiding light is that we should try and treat others as we would uh, treat ourselves. But sometimes the one that misses out is ourselves. And I've come to that illusion now that I haven't been kind to myself on occasion. And I'm getting better. It took me a long time. So get yourself a coach. Get yourself a mentor as well, if you can. And now I do a lot of mentorship. I'm mentoring a young woman in Toronto. And uh, we're working a lot on self-relief. I'm mentoring a young woman in West Wales who's a comic. I'm mentoring a very talented young musician in West Wales and a young man in Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. These people have got in tremendous talent, but they maybe haven't got somebody who's got the experience of having come across some really challenging situations. You need somebody in your life who cares about your career as much, if not more, than you do. So get yourself a mentor. Find somebody who you admire, you know, ask them, will you be my mentor? Can I have an occasional five minutes here and there of your time? And be committed to that process. I was very lucky that I had a mentor for over 20 years. She was the only woman in Wales to have ever won uh, an Estevra crown. So this is our annual cultural festival for grown-ups, not for uh, children, which is the other Estevra. She had won a Bardic crown, which is the highest accolade really in Wales that you can get, a Bardic crown or a Bardic chair. And she'd won two Bardic crowns. She was a friend of Edith Piaf's, and I have written a one-woman show about Edith Piaf called Fashionist About Piaf, which I talked about earlier on. And she always believed in me, and that gave me such tremendous confidence in my own abilities. When I got a, a slating by somebody or whatever, you know, I will never forget the, the time when we sat together in the, I think it was the new theatre, or maybe it was David Hall, I can't remember, but somewhere in Cardiff, where Elaine Page was singing about, uh, was doing the Piaf show. And she turned to me and she said, you're way better than she is. So all those little things that give you the confidence to keep on going, you know, find a mentor. Where did the comedy come from? Well, I was always funny and making everybody laugh. And when I was in school, I used to get the comic roles. I went to college to do physical education. All I wanted to be was a physical education teacher, nothing else. 
uh, I fell when I was doing the long jump at the age of 17 and that's kicked off the chondromalacia patella which meant after a term I had to change direction which was heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking I didn't know what I was going to do with my life I was totally lost but I was doing drama and there were I think there were 19 girls and two boys in the class or two males uh, the males were a bit stuck up and <laughs> didn't want to take the comedy roles so I got them all so I did loads of comedy roles in school, loved them, loved them in college. And when I was in Belgium, I was part of the English Comedy Club and I got some comedy roles there as well. And I absolutely loved them. And when I came back and I got my equity card and started performing, I also got a lot of comedy roles, um, which I loved. And then when I was in my mid thirties, I had a daughter. My husband was working away and basically my life as a, an entertainer and a performer uh, entailed a lot of working away for six months at a time or filming up in North Wales or whatever or doing uh, work in Bristol. And it wasn't as easy to do with a young baby and also my husband working away all the time. So I decided to do a master's degree. I did it in women's studies because I'm passionate about female development and I went and did the degree and we had to do a thesis about women working in a non-traditional environment. And we're talking about 1994 and essentially at that time, stand-up comedy, you know, we'd had the alternative comedy scene. We had a few things on television that were female-centric, but not that many. And I just wanted to find out, well, why were women not as prolific in comedy as men were? So that started my research into women in comedy. And I started off with five women, and they were Joe Brand, Jenny Eclair, Donna Maffeo, Lorraine Benloss and Wendy Kane. And it was so well received because I was looking at the barriers. What are the barriers? Why are women not um, prolific in comedy? But what it was really was a deconstruction of the glass ceiling through the prism of my passion, which is comedy. And I had such great feedback from it. People said, oh, you should get this published. You should have a book. You know, you should do this. And foolishly, um, I said, yeah, OK. So I started hunting around and I developed it then from the original 525 people that I interviewed. And eventually it became 94 people worldwide that I interviewed. So it's full of personal interviews. There are 65 women who were actually doing stand-up comedy. And I managed to track down people like Joan Rivers, I met Joan Rivers in Cardiff. I met Amy Schumer in the cellar in New York. I've interviewed people by Skype, by telephone, in person. The sort of people I've got in the book are Helen Lederer, Joe Brand, Jenny Clare, Hattie Hayridge, Ronnie Ancona. Oh, the names, I can't remember the names, but it's, it's huge, really. And it's, you know, things like First Asian, the First Muslim, the smallest, the tallest, the oldest, the youngest, mother and daughter, people who started comedy clubs the founding mother of Jongler's Comedy Club, a pianist in the comedy store on Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, it's got so many different voices in it. So chock-a-block full of role models. And it is a cutting-edge book, and a book that's never, ever been done before because women's comedy has been, for the large part, ignored. There's this huge myth around that women are funny, which is ridiculous because we're funny. How could you ever say that we don't have access to one of the, the, the most interesting things in life? Humour. For goodness sake, you know, humour is our go-to when times are hard. I've been involved in a comedy course all the way through COVID. And that's the thing that's kept me sane, is laughing. Laughing with other people. What we're going to have after this COVID crisis, we're going to have an absolute tsunami of mental health issues. 
that's for sure. You know, people who have not gone through the correct processes of life, you know, when it comes to saying goodbye to people, you know, people haven't been able to visit people in hospital. My sister now is in hospital with pneumonia. I should be there seeing her, you know, I should be at her side. My mother had to go to hospital on her own for a week, you know. There's that potential, the anxiety about catching COVID. You know, we've had to not say goodbye to people who have died. We haven't been able to attend funerals. We haven't been able to go to weddings. All of those traditional things that bind us as human beings, we've had to put them to one side. We've had to put our ambitions, our dreams, everything that we had anticipated, they have not happened over the last year. And I think that comedy is key to actually dealing with it because it's used as a release, you know, to our tension because we're all tense and anxious. We don't know what the future holds for us. Some of us have had to change directions entirely. You know, last year I was going to be doing my one-woman show entirely. That was what I was going to do. And I put my coaching to one side. I've had to come back to coaching. And uh, as with most self-employed people, I've been hit hard. People are not spending on coaching. So I've had to actually fish in different ponds. I've had to start networking on a global level. And I have to say, it's an exciting proposition. And some of the things that have happened during COVID, I don't think we'll ever not use them from now on. For example, I'm talking to you, Aaron, an Irish person that I met on a networking event, which contained people from uh, America, and you're, you're living in Spain. How would we ever have done this before COVID? It just wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have had those connections. I made some fantastic new contact through this time. So, you know, my philosophy is always look on the bright side of life. When life gives you a lemon, make lemonade, you know, never give up. I have all those mottos. If it's to be, it's up to me. You've got to make your own success. You really, really have. And if you don't know how to do that, come to me and I'll kick your ass because I know how to. I've been through it all. So um, <laughs> anyway, I'm talking non-stop as usual. No, no, no. no. You, I'm just imagining you in a whip and uh, kicking people's ass would be amazing. Now then don't get kinky, Aaron. <laughs> I don't have a whip. <laughs> um, That's for my other friends. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a baseball bat, though, which is very, very good. <laughs> In dealing with your, your own personal pain, Gwenna, you probably laughter has been your best medicine to get you through those dark times. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because there have been some very, very dark times. And one of the things that I'm actually starting to realise is that for the most part of my life, I've kept it hidden. And most people who see me think of me, and I know that because people say, you know, you're always smiling, you're always laughing, you're always positive, yet they don't see me when I'm in bed, when I am suffering really dreadfully with chronic pain, that the pain is so awful that I can't move, that the only thing I want to do is just cry my heart out. I don't want to dump that on other people. Why would I do that? Because people all have something that they're struggling with. So I prefer, I have a choice. I can be miserable or I can be happy, go lucky and make other people feel better. I know which one I choose. I always choose the latter. And I try and keep my misery and my pain to myself. But one of the things I have learned over the last few months is actually, there's no shame in actually opening up about some of that I have dealt with in my life. Depression is a very strong element in my family. It's the biggest taboo, really, and unfortunately, it has hit me. This is the first time I think I'm really talking about it, but it's quite obvious that it's been there and it's been a colleague throughout my life. I've tried to uh, do the best. 
But I realised that sometimes you need to start opening up about these things. It was always taboo when I was growing up and it had a really serious impact on my father's family. My father's family had been right there all the way through. And I'm sure that people were not very happy to hear me talk about it, but actually I am tired of carrying that shame, really, to be honest, because one in four of us is going to be affected by mental health issues throughout our life. One in four, right? And I would say that after COVID, that's going to be more like one in two. So there's no shame. And the sooner the better we get rid of this stigma, it's going to be making things easier. You can lift that burden. There are some people, I have a friend who is the most sensible, down-to-earth, capable person that you could ever, ever, ever imagine. I knocked on her door a couple of days ago and I said, oh, how are you doing? I've got some kale for you. And she said, oh, I'm okay, considering. And I said, considering what? She said, I just hit a mental wall a couple of weeks ago. And this wonderful, capable woman, who I would never, ever have thought would be struggling, really has hit rock bottom. So be aware that those people who smack on a smile, which I do all the time, you know, that is just a mask. And there are things behind the mask that we don't know about. You know, everybody has some issue that is not easy in their life. At the moment, my personal issue is that I may be losing the sight in my eye. I had a clot in it about five years ago. And then two years ago, I ended up having clots on my lungs. And it was misdiagnosed for three weeks and I nearly died in that um, period of time because it could have the clock could have gone to my heart or my brain or whatever. Uh, and I was being cheated with antibiotics. And then I broke four ribs. That was clever of me. But in that time, it did give me the opportunity to reflect on what I wanted from life. That's why I went back to doing my one-woman show because life's not guaranteed. You know, it, it could end just like that for any of us. So get out there and make the most of what you have. You know, uh, we all have challenges, every single one of us. Life's not easy. It's not meant to be, you know. And if it is easy, well, you're not pushing yourself hard enough for happy to say, you know. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And that is so true. Push yourself. You know, with my mentee in Toronto, this is what I said to her. I want you to report back to me in a month's time. And I want you to push yourself a tiny little bit every single day. You know, you can eat elephant, but only in small spoonfuls. I said, by the end of a month, you will have done something small every single day. By the end of a month, you will have done something incredible. So I want to hear you report back to me and tell me what you have achieved. We've got to grow. We have to grow. Otherwise, what's the point? Gwena, when you were lying in that bed realizing that this may be it, did you kind of realize everything you'd done to this moment was was perfect or you felt like there were things you regretted or things that when I do get out of this bed, I'm going to do better? Well, we always get things wrong, don't we? You know, I'm not perfect by a long stretch. There's lots of things I wish I hadn't done or had that hadn't happened. I made wrong decisions, but it's too late. It's gone. You know, we can only live in today. You know, you try and rectify your mistakes as best as you can. Uh, you have to forgive people who have hurt you and you've got to forgive yourself if you have hurt other people because otherwise you'll be carrying that burden forever. What do I wish? Nothing really, you know. I, of course we wish we'd spent more time with the, the ones that we love. You know, my brother died when he was 23 of Hodgkin's disease and I wish I'd had more time with him. I don't think I realised that he was dying. I didn't realize that until about a month or two before he died. And I wish I'd spent more time with him, of course. I wish he hadn't died. I wish he'd had Hodgkin's. No, he might have survived. 
But we can't undo the past. We can only rectify the present. We can only move forward through action. I often call myself the West Walian warrior woman because I am a warrior. I don't worry. Worry changes nothing. The only thing that changes anything is action. And you know, those big things that you don't want to do, well, just do them in small bits. I got another uh, coachie and uh, she's in Turkey and she loves to procrastinate. So I like the turkey, uh, the turkey. <laughs> I like, <laughs> I like the uh, carrot and the stick. And basically, I'd be saying to her, well, you can't do this thing. Uh, you can't have two magnums until you've done this, this thing that you want to do. And somehow she's decided that it's okay for me to give her orders. So she achieved what she wanted to do yesterday and got her two magnums. You know, so give yourself little treats for pushing through those things that you don't want to be doing. Cut them into small pieces. You know, a task is way easier if you boil it down to small things. One of the things I'm, I'm proudest of is I've created an anthem for St. David Day, which is our patron saint day. Now, that came about because I was taking part in a St. David's Day parade, the National St. David's Day parade in Cardiff in 2004. I just thought at that time that we didn't have an anthem for our patron saint, which we didn't. So I decided I was going to write it. <laughs> a bit of a cheek, really. Who am I to write an anthem for St. David's Day? But why not? Why not me? So I wrote the words in Welsh and in English and I took them to my uh, co-writing partner at the time and I told her what I wanted. I wanted to have a song that individuals could sing in Welsh and in English, which I would wrote the words in Welsh and in English. I wanted choirs, a school children, brass bands. I wanted it performed in Wales. I wanted it performed around the world. So she came up with the music. We performed it the next and day day parade. So that was 2005. Now, who would have thought at that time that this is now the anthem for St. David's Day? I had no idea where I was going, where I was taking it. But if you begin with the end in mind, which is a really powerful coaching technique, then the end in mind for me was I want to create an anthem for my patron saint. I'm passionately Welsh, and this is what I have done. It's taken me, I don't know, 16 years, and it's been a huge amount of work, a huge amount of work. But one of the things that has also happened, it has, um, it, it has enabled other things to happen. I worked immensely hard to promote uh, the idea of parades. And by now, there are 25 parades uh, for St. David's Day throughout Wales. I'm not saying it was just all my work, but uh, a great deal of my work went into it, my work and my energy. I've also instigated and three county banners. So the counties of Carmarthenshire, Pembrokeshire and Montgomeryshire all have county banners which are the size of the banners in the St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York. I don't know if you've ever been on that one, but my goodness, that is some parade. So they're big, they're all handmade. They have the words or symbols of uh, some of the elements of the St. David's Day Anthem on them. Uh, schools are also making little banners. And the very first one went into St. Fagans, which is our national museum. And I'm very proud of that. So again, begin with the end in mind. What is your vision? Where do you have a vision? Walt Disney used to say, if you can see it, you can be it. So have a vision and uh, work towards it. Never ever give up on that vision. Believe it's gonna happen and it will happen. I've got another thing that I'm doing down in West Wales. I, I'm not gonna talk about it yet, but uh, it's very exciting. And uh, so I'm from Fishgad, as I said, and it's uh, a town that struggles to survive on many levels. You've got the, um, the ferry there going to Ireland. They've got a fantastic New Year's party 
It's one of the best, if not the best, throughout Britain. They also have ABBA Jazz, which I was part of last week when I did my Piaf song. And that is the last weekend in August, usually, but they did a virtual one this week. I came up with an idea last week and I started floating it around and people are so enthusiastic. And I said, can you see this happening? And they said, yes, 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 I can see it happening. I can see it happening. And so if you've got um, an end in mind, which you can visualize, I know visualization is very, very important for you as an athlete and as other athletes, you know, you visualize yourself crossing the winning line and wearing that winner's medal. And you get that so ingrained in your head that it is so, it's, it, you can have no doubt at all. It is going to happen. When that happens, 10 years time, five years time, whatever, you have no doubt whatsoever, it is ingrained in your brain. You actually change the brain patterns in your mind to enable it to happen. So visualization is incredibly important, whatever you do in life. You see, if you can see it, you can be it. Thank you, Walt, because I think that's a, a fantastic nugget of information. You know, see yourself in that winning position. See yourself doing those things that you want to achieve. So I'll keep you posted, Aaron, about this uh, fantastic idea that I've got for Fishguard. It'll be fun. It'll be, you know, it'll be incredibly fun. And it should draw a lot of people to the town. But more than that, I'm not telling you. So I can see it happening. <laughs> When we were on mastermind calls in different networks, sometimes you come in your running gear. Tell us about how you came across running. Oh my God, I started when I was 11. Um, yeah, I used to run with a, a young woman called Mandy Freeman. We used to run, we were uh, totally flat by, you know, at that point, pre-adolescent. And Mandy Freeman and I used to run and we would shout, I must, I must, I must improve my bust. Hurrah, hurrah, at last I've got a bra. It was <laughs> really funny. So I started doing cross-country running at the age of 11. My dad used to run cross-country when he was in university. My uncle, Dewey Bebb, used to run for the Marines and also was a very well-known rugby player in his time. He played run for Wales and he played run for the Lions. He was a runner. I'm not quite sure what his event was. I think it was 200 metres. But somehow or another, I fell in love with the 400 metres. And that's where I would be seen. I'd be seen up on the athletics field. In the summer, I'd be coaching kids with athletic. I would be coaching kids in the winter with cross country. So I'd be doing an awful lot of running. I just loved it. I just loved it. For me, it was my place of meditation. I loved encouraging children. I loved setting goals for them, helping them get there. In fact, I've been coaching since I was a kid to be known. And when you get results and you see other people eating, you know that you're good at it. So that's where it all started. And I always used to represent school. I was Victoria Durham. I was athletics captain, cross country captain. I was the horse riding captain as well, if I remember well. <laughs> Strange. I was a house captain. So I was always encouraging, motivating, getting people to do things, you know, and getting them to succeed. So I'd go down to the county championships and I would take part because, you know, girls didn't, weren't that keen on athletics. And I used to represent all in all sorts of things, 100, 200, 400, 800, 1500, you name it. And I remember one year when we were in school, this is in the sixth form and there were hardly any girls meeting by then. So I did a, a 400 metres relay. I ran the first leg, passed it the baton over to the second person who ran across to the third person who ran across to the fourth place. And by that time, I'd run across the field, picked up the baton and ran back to, and won the race. <laughs> 
So I competed for Pembrokeshire and I was the Dovid, uh, which is three counties, Dovid, Marthenshire, Cardiganshire. I was the Marthenshire Intercounty 400 metres champion. My record stood for years. I used to go to the national championships and I was reserved for the Welsh team at the age of 17. I was absolutely bereft because I wanted to have a Welsh vest for representing my country from the time I'd seen my uncle in his red vest and seeing his rugby cap. So I was devastated and I never, ever gave up on that um, that dream. I was going to get a vest. I went to a college, had to change direction, devastated, as I said. And I was told if I didn't stop running and athletics, I would be walking with a stick by the time I was 30. So I stopped doing physical activity then for about three or four years, five years, whatever it was. Started running again. And when I was in Belgium, I used to do 20 kilometers um, in Belgium along the cobbles, which was really hard, really hard on the, the knees. There. Then came back to Britain, uh, started doing half marathons, did a full marathon. Uh, and I wasn't really training then. And I came seventh in the Cardiff Marathon. And I thought, if I can come seventh in the Cardiff Marathon, a seventh woman, sorry, if I can come seventh without training, then I will, I'm going to get set my mind to it and I'll really do well next year. So what I did the next year, I found a trainer. And we used to, used to run uh, to Castell Court, about 12 miles. We do that on a regular run two or three times a week. And this guy was nuts. He would do things like he'd run top of the um, the building in uh, in New York, Carteran Road. Uh, and he'd run from John Agro to uh, whatever, Land's End. And he would do the Rotterdam Marathon. Then he'd travel overnight to the London Marathon. He was nuts. Uh, but he actually, he did end up going blind because of all that pounding. It had an effect on his optic nerve. But anyway, so there was about, it was about five days before the second marathon that I was going to take. And I was on track to be in the first three. And I was involved in a four-vehicle pilot. It was a, a lorry that was, it was a removal lorry that was going about 50 miles an hour, 20 mile an hour area, rammed into the back of a car, which rammed into the back of my camping van, which rammed into the back of another car. So it was a four vehicle pilot. I had terrible whiplash and that was when my permanent back problem started. So I was there at the beginning of the marathon and I had my neck in a brace and I was heartbroken anyway. I had physiotherapy, went back to running, not extensively, wasn't doing half marathons, but I was doing 10Ks and stuff like that. And then I had another car accident. Somebody went slammed into the back of my vehicle, uh, going too fast, too close. And that's when the, the chronic pain started. That was when the disability started. So, uh, and since that time, I've been in chronic daily pain. Then there was another car accident. Somebody slammed into the side of our car and we nearly died in France. Uh, the guy was uh, moving house and his car was piled up. We were on a dual carriageway. He couldn't see, just drew out into my side of the car. The, um, the what you call bag, the emergency bag, bloated. I thought, I'm dying, but we didn't. Got through that, went to hospital, blah, blah. That didn't do my back any good. Anyway, pain clinics, blah, 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 uh, physiotherapy, chiropractic, oh, you name it, I tried it. I eventually found um, a DVD in America, which enabled me to, I suppose, crack my own spine back in place, which I did. And that's when I started going running again, because although my, my spine was hypermobile, I've got hypermobile, hypermobility in my L4, L5, S1, I am able to manipulate them back into place. So when I had that sort of space in my life to actually hyper uh, move my whatever it was back into place, I then got on with my running again. 
And um, that, in that space of time, I had my Welsh vest, I had my four championship medals in the, what were they now, three kilometre walk, 1500, 800 and 400 metres. It was a 400 metres I was always after. And then very soon after that, they found out that I had no cartilage at all on my knee. And that's when I had to have an operation and I got three pins in my leg now. So I don't do an awful lot of running. I did manage to do the half marathon with my daughter when it was a world half marathon in Cardiff a few years ago. But I ran six miles and then it was just too painful. I just walked the rest. I just wanted to do it with her. So I still have to manipulate my spine back in all the time. I'll have to do it now because I haven't had a chance today. And I can run. I just need it for the head base more than anything. It is often very painful, but I just love it. I'm a bit of a running junkie, you know, so I just don't want to stop doing it. So that's about it, really. Is that enough now about the running? <laughs> that That's perfect. I was just going to ask you next about how do you deal with your chronic pain on a daily basis? Because it probably mentally it puts you down and physically it's like, oh, this is too much pain, you know? Well, I um, I have been on antidepressants for a very long time and that's the very first time I've said that in public. So I'm feeling brave today because it's very depressing. It's very, very depressing. Yes, there's no doubt at all about it. You know, I've missed out on so many things in my life and with my daughter more than anything. It's very depressing. I use painkillers on a regular basis, which made me often spaced out, which uh, is a very nice feeling, but it's not conducive to productivity. I also have discovered CBD oil in the last six months, and that has enabled to um, do things, uh, you know, um, a little bit better. Yeah, I just for me, the only way I can cope with it is to try and live as normal a life possible. I had four blue disabled badges. I got them here in front of me. Yeah, no, I had my first blue disabled badge. It was the 31st of March, 2002. That was the first one. And then obviously the last one I had would have ended in 2011. So basically I've got to the point now, I mean, I've been to pain clinics. I was offered, I have, I've had denervation. I've had the whole lot. I was on tramadol, you name it. So basically I've just have to learn to live with it, you know, and try not to be, feel too sorry for myself. <laughs> But I will just, sometimes I'll take to my bed for a day and there's no way around it. I just get on with it. It's that simple, you know. It does give me an insight into other people. I mean, all of the things that I've managed to overcome in my life does give me a lot of empathy for other and their pain. So that's a positive side of it, you know. I'm a far nicer person than I would have been, I think. Because I, I realise that the people struggle and um, so I, I'll try my best with all of my clients to understand what they're going through and to honour their pain because I think it's very, very important. I think this is the most open conversation I've ever had in my life. But I think that going on all of these networking meetings and people saying, oh, you've got to talk from the heart. And I'm just thinking, I have overcome an awful lot of stuff, to be honest. And because of that, I can share with other people and inspire other people and make them realize it's not the end of the world. It's not, you know, because I did think, you know, because when the doctors used to say, you've got to learn to live with this. And I said, I'm not going to learn to live with this. I'm going to find a solution. But there wasn't a solution. <laughs> it's that simple. There was never a solution, you know. So I just, you just have to get the best out of every single day and be grateful. You know, I could have been paralyzed in any of those accidents quite easily, but I've had a pretty fulfilling life, you know. I managed to have a child who was very difficult, you know, lifting and twisting was always horrendously painful. But I have a beautiful daughter who is 28 years of age. 
I've been able to be successful in lots of areas of my life. Those things might not have happened if I hadn't hurt my back when I was 17 and had gone on to be a physical education teacher. I wouldn't have had half the wonderful experiences that I've had in my life. I've had some amazing experiences, honestly, I really have. They've been tinged by pain, but you forget the pain. It's like when you give birth to a child, it's horrendous, but you forget it soon enough. You just gotta live through it, you know? It sounds like your disability in some way has taught you to be superhero in a, in a different way, in a sense of you're able to understand the individual far more than everything because of your own personal experiences. And I think, you know, when we have a something wrong with us, we try to look for the answer. But I think when, when we're searching for the answer, the answer is in us. And from what I hear is I don't have an answer, but yes, I'm doing all these amazing things. I'm broadcasting, I'm teaching people. I'm voicing, I'm running, I'm, but yet I know my body has the restrictions and I respect that at the same time. I don't think I respect my body as much as I should, to be honest, but um, it's the only one I've got. And, you know, as I said earlier on, you know, I've got to become my own best friend. I've got to say, no, come on, Gwen, stop pushing yourself too hard. Just slack off a bit. Time for a bath. No, you can't do this because you feel, you feel unwell, you know take some more painkillers. You know, I've got to discipline myself to realizing when I'm not feeling well. And I don't think I used to do that, but I'm better now, you know, and I know, I mean, I don't want to be on antidepressants. Why would I want to be on antidepressants? It's not fun, you know, I don't want to be. There's that stigma attached to it. But however, if it's the way I can cope with my life and I can make other people happy through my work, my performance, everything that I do, then so be it. I just have to accept it. And sometimes acceptance, you see, I wouldn't accept that I wasn't going to find a solution. I wouldn't accept it. And I made life so much harder for myself. And I spent so much time trying to find solutions when there wasn't a solution. There just wasn't a solution. And considering that I spent so much time finding a solution, I think I've done remarkably well, really, with all the other things in my life. So I never give up, because why would I? When I give up, I'm going to be dead. I'm not dead yet. I still, I'm so excited about the future, you know? There's so many great things that I'm going to achieve. I know that, and I'm going to achieve them with people and for people, and I'm going to make people, I, you know, I can see it with the people I coach. You know, they're so much happier. I have one client, and she's been... You know, I, I wouldn't recommend coaching on a weekly basis because you've got to, got to plant the seeds. You've got to enable them to move forward. But this woman, I can't tell you, you know, two or three months ago, she was um, she was drinking uh, when she was having a bender. She would be drinking a bottle of gin a night. Now she's clean. She is progressing towards her goals. She's moving and making such tremendous changes to her own life. And that's only because I've lit the spark that was always there, you know? It's an all-encompassing fire now. She is really cooking on gas. And we all have that. It's just that life life knocks the stuff in out of some people. You've got to be like that, that bouncy little thing that keeps bouncing back, you know? You've got to. You've got to be really resilient, you know, because you've always got the choice of giving up. And I ain't going to do that for no one. You know... It's funny, another thing you sometimes do is break out in music and songs and the amount. Me? Yeah, you do. Yeah, I do. I yeah. do. I've gone, so many, I've gone on so many networking things and that's my party piece. So what do you want me to sing for you? Whatever you feel right. It's, this is your stage, Mrs. So you decide. 
Well, I've been singing Summertime a lot recently, but I, I feel like I might do something else, like... Whatever doll I want, lol, I guess a little man, little all I want you. Make up your mind to have no regrets. Resign yourself, recline yourself, you're through. I always get what I aim for. And your heart and soul is what I came for. Whatever all I want, Lord, I guess resign yourself, recline yourself, you're through. There you go. I thought I'd sing that one. It just came into my head. I was thinking, should I sing Big Spender? But I thought I can't remember the word. <laughs> <laughs> Gwenno, if there's one piece of advice that you could give someone that, that you've learned throughout your massive experience of excitement, ups and downs and everything, what would it be? I know. I've said it so many times, never give up. Oh. Yeah, the other, other thing is, be yourself at any cost, any other way you are lost. You know, you've got to be authentically you. I turned up as me, day, war and all. I've told you things about myself that I probably shouldn't have, but I've been very open, and I think that that's what I have to be. What you see is what you get. I'm a West Whalian warrior woman. I'm Gwen David. I'm not anything but me. And that's who I intend to be for the rest of my days. Because I quite like me, really. I'm very brave. I'm very passionate. I'm very kind, very loving. And I'm a fucking kick-ass woman. Oop, sorry, did I just say that? <laughs> Oops. Gwena, thank you so much for your time, your experience, your knowledge and being so open with me and the audience. It's been, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. And I'll keep you in the loop about what's happening in Fishguard. Awesome. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.